Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hello and welcome to this edition of joint action this podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis aka crumbly joints On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this episode of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing how to diagnose osteoarthritis and the role of imaging. Now, many people with joint pain make their initial presentation to their healthcare professional, to their local doctor, the pharmacist, physiotherapist, and so on. Oftentimes, they're unclear as to what the cause of their pain is. Historically, osteoarthritis has been referred to as a clinical diagnosis, meaning it can be made based on history and physical examination alone. Increasingly, imaging, things like x-rays, MRIs, ultrasounds, are being used routinely in clinical practice to make the diagnosis of osteoarthritis. Is this necessary? Is it potentially harmful? The purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this topic of how we diagnose osteoarthritis and particularly the role of imaging in that. And we're joined by none other than Tahina Nyoji. Dr. Nyoji is a rheumatologist and epidemiologist with research interests in osteoarthritis focused upon epidemiology, risk factors, pain mechanisms, and the role of bone in its pathogenesis. Her other research interests are in crystal arthritis, novel epidemiologic methodology and classification criteria, and outcome measures in rheumatic diseases. In addition to clinical care and research, Dr. Nyoji mentors numerous trainees and junior faculty, and is actively engaged in teaching and curricular development. 
She's the Chief of Rheumatology and Medicine at Boston Medical Center, a Professor of Epidemiology at the Boston University School of Public Health, and Section Chief of Rheumatology at the Boston University School of Medicine. And she's one of a rare breed we call clinician scientists, meaning she's a researcher that sees patients. Tahina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to see you. And uh, obviously, we've had the privilege of uh, working together over a long period of time and at least temporarily working together in the same location in Boston, at least briefly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But that goes back some time. So really looking forward to getting into the topic at hand today. But before we get started, just in the interest of complete disclosure, are there any conflicts of interest that we should be aware of? Yeah, so nothing that I'll be speaking about directly, but I do consulting for a number of companies, including Pfizer Lilly, EMD Merck Serono, Novartis, and Regeneron. And I was recently on the core executive committee that published the American College of Rheumatology Arthritis Foundation Osteoarthritis Treatment Guidelines. Superb. Thank you for that. Now, I know you a little bit, but I am very interested in the answers to the next questions and uh, getting to know you a little bit better. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I wasn't actually sure that those questions would be asked. Okay, so five words. So I will say energetic, curious. I like to think funny. Maybe it's just my husband and, and no one else. Caring, thoughtful, and principled. And they're um, fantastic qualities, and I've obviously had the opportunity to uh, enjoy that over a number of years. Um, and your energy um, is truly amazing. The amount that you get done is, is phenomenal. Now, from a professional standpoint, the current sort of COVID period aside, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Sure. So as you mentioned in the introduction, I am a rheumatologist, so I see patients I help train the next generation of rheumatologists and uh, medical doctors. I conduct clinical research in osteoarthritis and gout. I mentor people on as to how to conduct research and help them with their career development. As chief of rheumatology, I also oversee um, the clinical practice of rheumatology at my institution. And I also uh, periodically uh, teach medical students and at the School of Public Health. So your plate sounds very full. You sure you can't fit anything more on there? <laughs> People try to get me to uh, add more to it, but uh, it, yes, I agree. It's pretty full. Yeah. Now, obviously that plate, whilst it is full, you do enjoy things outside of your day job. What is it that you like to do when you're not at work? Well, I uh, really enjoy music. Um, both my husband and I are fortunate that we enjoy the same taste in, in music. So we uh, enjoy listening to music, going out to see performances. We uh, enjoy cooking and eating, perhaps with a nice glass of wine periodically. Uh, not too much, though. I enjoy gardening. I also enjoy doing Japanese pottery. And in terms of my physical activity, I enjoy, I don't know if this is a franchise that's sort of international, but there's a a franchise that sort of trains in high intensity interval training, um, Orange Theory. So I'm a, a big devotee of Orange Theory and uh, I also go to yoga. 
Superb. Now, on that list, you didn't include a passion for sports. Um, and I'm just wondering whether Scott has pushed oh you goodness. in any directions at all. <laughs> well, that's a very good point. So there is a lot of sports appreciation in the household, uh, more than enough for um, the entire household. So I do not need to specifically state that, but I do appreciate all the Boston sports teams. They've all done exceedingly well since I moved to the city, so I take credit for that. Um, but I am Canadian originally, so if it's a Canada versus US, I'm always rooting for the Canadian team. So it's great to hear that about yourself. Now I'm going to get into the topic of the day. There are a number of different criteria that are used to, to diagnose osteoarthritis, but can you just tell us a little bit about the ones that are more routinely used for the diagnosis? Sure. So I think one thing I would like people to understand is that sometimes there are criteria that are published, but they're intended more for helping researchers bring people into studies. How to identify a group of people that have the common features of a disease so that they can be studied in a clinical trial. So we should not use those criteria for diagnoses, but rather use those criteria to help us understand the key features, positive or negative, that help us think about the most common presentation of a disease. So one of the criteria that are commonly cited for osteoarthritis are from 1986. The American College of Rheumatology at that time was the American Rheumatism Association. And they uh, put out a set of classification criteria, which in modern days we think of, as I said, more intended for enrollment into clinical trials and studies. And the reason is because those types of criteria may not pick up all of the rare manifestations of a disease that a physician would otherwise diagnose as, as being indicative of having that disease. There are other guidance about clinical features of osteoarthritis that a physician can use. Um, and another example of that is, are the uh, UK NICE guidelines, which really, I think, do a very nice job of describing the age at which we typically think about osteoarthritis. So osteoarthritis is not something we would commonly think of as occurring in younger persons, typically more common after the age of 45, 50, with um, increasing prevalence um, into the 60s. We think of osteoarthritis as being a disease where there is pain with weight-bearing, pain with use of the joint, as opposed to other uh, inflammatory conditions. In later stages, there might be sort of bony enlargement, there might be crackling, or, um, a creaking of the, of the joints. These are all clinical features that are clues to osteoarthritis. And as a physician, we also have to ask questions to help us think about whether or not there could be any other type of arthritis that could be mimicking or could be confused for osteoarthritis. So I think that the criteria and guidelines are helpful in thinking about common features, but don't encompass all the different variations that we should be thinking about and other diseases to consider in ruling out. Fantastic. Now, a lot of the characteristics or qualities that you just spoke about, both in terms of age, pain, crackling or crepitus, all appear to be features that are based on you know, a good history or physical examination. What is the role of imaging in the diagnosis of osteoarthritis? That's a, it's a great question. I think that at present, there is the understanding of osteoarthritis in, in the clinical presentation is quite well understood. And so the role of imaging in the diagnosis of osteoarthritis is primarily if 
the presentation is atypical and if the physician is concerned about some other form of arthritis or some other cause of the symptoms. So not to make the diagnosis of osteoarthritis per se, but rather to rule out some other disease that can't be ruled out on the basis of that, uh, of the symptoms and the history that the patient is providing about what they're experiencing. Based upon what you're saying, it sounds like that's probably infrequent, but are there certain situations where imaging could be helpful uh, in that initial presentation? And so sometimes, for example, people with osteoarthritis, they might have joint swelling. So while osteoarthritis has traditionally been thought of as a non-inflammatory arthritis, we know that joint swelling can occur in osteoarthritis. So sometimes, for example, someone might have a little bit of swelling in their hand joints and the joints that are involved could be seen in rheumatoid arthritis, could be seen in osteoarthritis, could be seen in psoriatic arthritis. And without sufficient additional um, history to help differentiate between the different types of arthritis, it might be reasonable to get some hand x-rays to see if the features on radiograph differentiate osteoarthritis from these other forms of arthritis. That would be sort of one example. I think if the uh, symptoms are out of keeping with the presentation, you might want to make sure that there's no other pathology uh, that can be detected by x-ray that might explain the pain that wouldn't necessarily be attributable to osteoarthritis on its own. Brilliant. Now, is there any downside to the routine use of imaging that we characteristically see in, in much clinical practice these days? And in particular, the routine use of MRI for making a diagnosis of osteoarthritis? Right. So I'll start with radiographs or x-rays. There's you know minimal downside other than cost and time, et cetera. The amount of radiation exposure is um, minimal, but nonetheless, we do strive to minimize unnecessary tests. When you come to MRI, because MRI can visualize a lot more of the tissues in the joint beyond just the bone, so a lot more is visible, a lot more can be picked up. And what we know from various studies that even people with no x-ray evidence of osteoarthritis, 90 plus percent of those knees can have an abnormality on MRI. And further, those abnormalities can be present regardless of whether or not someone has pain. So if a physician gets an MRI report back and there's an MRI abnormality, it's very challenging to know if those MRI abnormalities are contributing to what's going on with them in terms of their symptoms right now. This is a well-known issue with chronic low back pain where the imaging doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in the back, et cetera. So I, I think the harms are that there could be incidental findings that are not contributing to the clinical picture, but the clinician and patient may feel compelled to, to uh, sort of pursue that clue, and sometimes that could lead to surgery. And as an extreme example, Right now in the U.S., arthroscopic partial meniscectomies, so surgery for the meniscus, is one of the most common orthopedic procedures, over 700,000 procedures per year. There are costs associated with those um, surgeries. There are potential risks of the surgeries. And we've come to know from numerous well-conducted, randomized clinical trials published in very high-impact journals that that surgery is essentially no better than sham surgery or physical therapy. So 
The harms include costs. The harms include pursuing incidental findings to the point of someone potentially undergoing surgery that itself has risks. At the present time, there really is no role for MRI in making the diagnosis of osteoarthritis. Again, if there's an unusual presentation, it's unclear that the symptoms are really due to osteoarthritis and the x-rays may not be picking up an abnormality. There may be a potential role, but those would be uh, very specialized cases. So you've been instrumental in doing some work, um, particularly looking at the relationship between plain radiographs, x-rays and pain. At an individual level, is an x-ray a helpful test to inform about why a person's knee may be painful? And for a person who is looking uh, to get their disease managed, does it help the clinician to inform the types of management that should be being used for osteoarthritis? So for a given patient, the x-ray alone is not going to be very impactful on what's causing their pain and what needs to be done. Again, there might be some special cases, rare circumstances where there is a particular pathology not related to osteoarthritis that is picked up. But if we're talking about general uh, presentation of osteoarthritis, just seeing what's on the x-ray alone is not going to help make decisions about how to manage the symptoms. I, th I think one of the important things over the years that we've come to recognize, not just in osteoarthritis, but in any condition in which pain is a prominent symptom, is that pain has a number of different contributors. So pain isn't just what is going on in the tissue where the pain is occurring, but the pain experience has a number of additional factors that contribute to it. And this includes things like your mood, if you have sort of depressive symptoms, you'll be more likely to feel pain. If you have poor sleep, you'll be more likely to feel pain. If you don't have good coping skills, if you don't have sort of good resilience, the pain symptoms can be overwhelming. If you have particular traits, um, such as what's known as pain catastrophizing, the pain can seem overwhelming. So we've come to understand that we have to think about a whole host of factors beyond what's just happening at the painful joint to help someone adequately manage their symptoms so that they can function well and have good quality of life. Both you and I, I think, are pretty on, much on the same page with regards perspectives on how rampant the use of imaging is in clinical practice. Is there anything that we can do, other than you know, potentially having this conversation, to discourage the routine use of imaging in clinical practice? I think that's a really important but very challenging question. And I think it has to be from sort of a grand roots effort in medical education, ongoing education for general practitioners, because we can write about it, but if it's not getting disseminated and if, if medical students are not being exposed to this and uh, exposed to it on a, re on a repeated basis and, and have that clinical experience that you don't need the x-rays to make management decisions for these patients, it's going to be very tough to change. I think it's really a shame that a medical training has such little exposure to rheumatology, particularly given that osteoarthritis is estimated to affect about 300 to 500 million people worldwide. It's one of the most common conditions that someone as a physician will be facing, yet we have very little training opportunities. 
that's one. Another is a maybe perhaps a little more policy oriented and top down from an insurer's perspective. But um, in the US, in the United States, there is a campaign called Choosing Wisely. And that's trying to discourage some um, unnecessary test use. And there might be similar campaigns in other countries. In some instances, that leads to policymakers and insurers not paying for unnecessary tests. That seems a little draconian because we want to make sure that clinicians have the opportunity to uh, use what they need to manage an individual patient. Um, so I think the training route is probably a better approach. Yeah, no, really wise words. And, you know, I think just to really re-emphasize what you were saying before, particularly about the use of MRI, uh, which is associated with both substantial costs, but then very real risks of harm with increased rates of surgical intervention. Now, as rheumatologists, we, we like taking blood and synovial fluid and all kinds of different things. Again, for the diagnosis of osteoarthritis, is there any role for laboratory investigations? Yeah, so uh, osteoarthritis is one of those conditions that does not have a specific blood test to tell the person that they have osteoarthritis. So it's not needed in the diagnosis in sort of standard typical presentations. I think patients and clinicians should just bear in mind that those te tests could be ordered if there's an atypical presentation, if the clinician is unable to differentiate what the patient is presenting with from some other form of uh, an arthritis that might benefit from a blood test or synovial fluid analysis. Brilliant. Now, you touched upon this at least briefly before, but I just want to get you to expand on a little bit further. But we know that the etiology of pain in osteoarthritis is, is complex. And when a person first presents, you know, at this point in time, we're encouraging people to have a holistic assessment for their osteoarthritis. As a rheumatologist, a world-leading expert in the management of this disease, what would you be encouraging a patient to have assessed at that first presentation that might help to inform their disease diagnosis and its management? Right. So I think you know, beyond helping the clinician understand their pain symptoms, when is the pain occurring, what makes it worse, what makes it better, having a good understanding of what their functioning is like, where are the functional limitations occurring, what are the activities that they'd like to be able to get back to doing, how is this impacting their participation in activities that they enjoy? Those are sort of very important for the clinician to understand. For people that are of working age or even you know, people that continue to work on household activities, understanding activities at work or at home that are impacted. So again, you can think about what accommodations or what kind of strategies could be used to help have someone continue um, being productive at work and at home. And then back to the factors that uh, I was mentioning about the other contributors to the pain experience, including ensuring that the clinician has a good sense of what the patient's mood is like, if there are depressive symptoms, if there's anxiety, those types of things would, should, need, should be addressed. And if that clinician is not able to address those, then to seek other uh, sources that could help address those issues. Sleep is really important. Without having improved sleep, pain is very difficult to manage. But I think for patients, the most important thing to realize is that pain is a symptom. What we, what we would like to do as a clinician is not only improve their pain, 
but uh, get them functioning to the best of their ability and have them get back to enjoying their quality of life to the best of our ability. That might not mean zero pain. It means managing the symptoms so that they can function and go about their daily activities as best that they can so that they have enjoyment and don't feel that the osteoarthritis is holding them back. Brilliant, really, really helpful advice. Now, in closing off on that particular topic, are there any patient-friendly resources that you're aware of that might shed further light on this topic? So I unfortunately will be a bit US-centric here because the OA Action Alliance, I think, has some good uh, resources on their website that then links to other resources. Um, I think the OA Action Alliance has links to uh, programs from the Arthritis Foundation, and many different countries have organizations like the Arthritis Foundation, which are patient-focused organizations. The Arthritis Foundation has this focus on osteoarthritis. Some of its information needs to be updated uh, to reflect sort of more modern understanding of, of osteoarthritis, but they do have a very good uh, resources for um, walking with ease, uh, exercise, etc. The OE Action Alliance also has other physical activity resources. So one thing I should have mentioned in that first visit with a clinician is we should expect clinicians to help patients engage in physical activity, ask about what types of daily activities they're doing, that patients you know, often can be physically active, such as gardening, and not really consider that exercise. So exercise is planned structured activity, we may be able to get physical activity out of our daily other routines, such as, you know, walking to the to the bus to take public transportation, etc. I find that it's most helpful if we think about physical activity and exercise as another therapy that needs a prescription. And I think people who don't have a physical activity routine often feel stuck. They don't know where to start. They think they might have to start jogging. And walking is really one of the best forms of exercise for osteoarthritis. And, and um, I write out a prescription for daily walking where we start slow and gradually build up to a program that is feasible for an individual. So really tailor it to the individual. And I think the patient-friendly resources that we're talking about have a lot of help with thinking about physical activity. Brilliant. That's very practical and helpful advice. Is there anything else that I should have asked that I forgot to on that topic? Again, with physical activity, people should have some realistic goals and expectations and understand that even a little amount will be beneficial. So you don't have to hit 10,000 steps a day. Start with 3,000 steps per day. There was a study that showed that 6,000 steps per day was sufficient to help stave off functional limitations. So to so keep functioning, even 6,000 steps per day can be um, helpful. So helping patients realize that they, they don't have to try to run half a marathon, that achievable daily walking goals will help with their osteoarthritis, keeping strong, etc. And then I also like to explain to patients that it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, approach to managing OA, that we have to find the right puzzle pieces that go together to manage all the different contributions to their pain experience and to their functional limitations. And as physicians, we need to remember that physical therapists are important partners in managing osteoarthritis. So I think advice on physical activity, advice on weight loss, and referral to physical therapy is woefully underutilized by most physicians. Completely agree. Now, you have a particular interest in 
um, why the knee or why the joint hurts rather in osteoarthritis and you're doing a lot of work in that space. Any recent insights from the work that you're doing that you'd like to share with us? Sure, yeah. So uh, myself and several other scientists around the world have been trying to understand why some people have terrible pain, but their x-rays don't look that bad, versus someone could have a terrible looking x-ray, but they don't have very bad symptoms. And you know, part of that discrepancy is because of all of these other factors that contribute to the pain experience. Some people just have you know, more pain tolerance, etc. An area of interest over the past several years has been in understanding how the nervous system might play a role in amplifying signals from a joint to the brain. So almost like thinking about the volume dial being turned up in what information your brain is getting from the joint. So we have found that people who have sort of evidence of this volume dial being turned up where these uh, signals in the nerves are, are going up to the brain more readily than they otherwise normally would, those are the people who tend to have more pain severity. And even before pain starts, having a sort of a quote-unquote revved up nervous system where that volume dial is turned up, those are the people that are most at risk for developing persistent joint pain down the road. So this isn't only about osteoarthritis causing the pain, but there's also potentially some underlying predisposition to developing pain once something manifests that can trigger the onset of, of those symptoms. So there's a lot of uh, research going on as to why this might be. And at present, we don't have a clear sense of why these changes occur in some people, but there are medications that are being developed to target these pathways that I think will offer a real uh, new alternative for or new addition to the armamentarium of what we can offer patients in managing their pain in addition to taking care of the basic foundations of self-management, exercise, weight loss, etc. Fantastic, and uh, good luck with that really important work and hope it provides continued important insights. Now we're just gonna move on and um, get a few more insights from some very generic questions about you and the work that you do, but what's the biggest challenge you have with your specific role right now and how are you gonna overcome that? The biggest challenge right now, right this moment is um, COVID-19. I think um, this pandemic has really obviously changed the world um, and has changed healthcare. So from my very small circle, having to figure out how to safely provide care to patients that need that care while keeping patients safe, staff safe, and physicians safe has been very challenging. How do we continue to train future doctors and future rheumatologists when we have to limit how much contact we have with patients. You know, so these are challenges that we face as clinicians in an academic teaching center. But I think the, the broader issue is um, what it shone the light on the, the challenges of social inequities and that the vulnerable communities are being affected more so than other communities where people can socially distance and can afford to work from home, um, et cetera. And so um, I work at a hospital that serves the underserved. And one of the biggest challenges has been in getting the, the treatments needed to our vulnerable communities and, and helping 
to think about how to keep people safe even when their social circumstances are making it more challenging for them to do so. Yeah, really big and very important issues. And I'm really hoping that, you know, I guess our, our understanding of the challenges, um, particularly as it relates to the inequities that abound, uh, continue to have an informed conversation and help to improve the situations of many who unfortunately are suffering as a consequence of that, both in terms of their opportunities, but particularly at the moment, uh, their, their health. Now, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? If you were to ask this to me before sort of COVID really changed uh, worldviews on all sorts of things, I would say that, you know, apart from really essential sort of public health measures like clean water um, and those types of things um, in parts of the world where they, they need that kind of basic public health, I would say more broadly, if we could tackle obesity and, and nutrition um, right from childhood, I think that would stave off so many chronic conditions. And of course, for us as rheumatologists, um, osteoarthritis. Um, so I think if we could do one thing um, and just focus on nutrition and physical activity from a young age and throughout the lifespan, I think that would be uh, one of the biggest things we could do to improve health. I mean, obviously, obesity is a wicked problem. Um, where would you start? So I, I think, you know, as I said, if, if, if we were talking about this before COVID, I would have a much narrower perspective on this. But I think what, what COVID has done, um, and, you know, frankly, it probably reflects the fact that I've, even though I'm a person of color, I've, I've lived a life of privilege and that I haven't been touched by these inequities. And I, I think we cannot talk about tackling obesity without talking about tackling social inequities because it comes right from having a living wage to provide healthy food and nutrition to the family, being in safe neighborhoods where you can go out for exercise and physical activity, being, um, you know, having education in school about these things. So, you know, I think the social determinants of health um, and obesity and nutrition are, are intimately intertwined and this requires really, I think, governmental policy beyond what um, you know we might advocate in in guidelines, et cetera. But I think we we need like a, a cultural revolution to tackle social determinants of health to improve health overall. Well, I hope you find somewhere in the, that bandwidth of energy that you already have to uh, continue to expand upon that because it's really really important, and I hope we can do something in that space together. Now, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? So that's very challenging. You know, the first question you asked in the segment was, uh, what are my, the biggest challenges in my role right now? And um, taking a very selfish, small view of that question would be that my biggest challenge is time. And I, so you know, coming tying that into your current question about what do I do to sort of stay on top of things, the challenge there is also time. And so I... I'm not very, I can't say that I have a, a good solution and I, I always feel that I'm failing at it. Um, but I do try to keep on top of electronic table of contents from um, important journals that I scan. I'm only a fairly recent joiner of Twitter, um, but I have found it very valuable to keep up on. Um, I mean, I curate what I'm following, but I, I found it very valuable to keep up on some areas of you know, rheumatology and broader clinical things that I might otherwise miss. Um, 
I, I'm in an academic center where we have a lot of um, academic scholarly activities, so that helps. Um, and I, I think just continuing to keep curious does help, but time is a major struggle. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. Time, time is a huge challenge, and if we all had uh, an additional 24 hours in the day, I'm pretty sure we'd fill that up as well. Um, <laughs> you just mentioned your um, recent engagement with Twitter. Where can listeners connect with you if they wanted to with your Twitter handle? Um, so uh, my Twitter handle is at my first name, Tuhina, T-U-H-I-N-A, then underscore, and then my last name, N-E-O-G-I. So it's very important to put the underscore between my first name and last name because there's a poor girl in India who had gotten bombarded um, <laughs> with tweets that were directed at me. Um, but she's very sweet. Her mother has knee osteoarthritis, so it was very fortuitous to her that she got mistaken for me because now her mother gets some free osteoarthritis advice. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it say and why? Oh, my gosh. That is, uh, I don't know if it would be something very sort of generally good for humanity and hum humankind, some you know, wonderful painting with an inspiring quote to just have people recognize the sort of common humanity that we all share, um, sort of given the, the times that we're living in, or if it would be something more sort of health focused and as I said, sort of tackling this obesity nutrition thing. I, that's a tough question and I apologize. I don't have a good uh, answer for you, but I think somewhere between can't we all get along and take care of each other to let's get a let's get a healthy globe in place by by tackling some of these yeah. basic things well it's great it's great to hear you still have a very active social conscience and um, in addition to that uh, a very cognizant of I think the biggest pressing health issue of our time now just in closing for people out there with osteoarthritis is there any one piece of advice knowledge or wisdom that you haven't already imparted that you'd like to re-emphasize or share I don't know that I have one particular piece of advice, but I, I do think it's important for patients to feel that they're heard and that everyone's pain experience is different and that they should not feel that their symptoms are being discounted. And, you know, if a, if a, if a healthcare provider is unable to explain their symptoms, they shouldn't feel discouraged. Pain is very challenging and sometimes we don't have an answer. But just because we don't have an answer doesn't mean that there aren't modalities that can be tried. And again, finding the right puzzle pieces to be put together to help someone manage their symptoms so that they can improve their function and enjoy their quality of life. Tahina, thank you so much for your time, your insights, your wisdom, your passion. Um, it's great having an opportunity to chat with you about it. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. 
This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.